Well, good morning. My name is Mark Butler. I serve over at Anchor Church, and as Gene's off uh, studying in England and, and Zach's on maneuvers with his unit, I am grateful for the opportunity to present God's Word to you today. And as we have just read from the Old Testament passage and the, and the Gospel, I take courage in the fact that God calls us to wrestle with Him, that we are to be persistent in prayer. And, and I, I always remember that as God named His people Israel, which means to wrestle with God, that he is encouraging us to look at him and say, I'm going to engage. And God says, I want to engage with you. And so I pray that this morning that we would engage in God's word. The story goes that there was four young men in college and they went out out of a night of partying. They had a test the next day. They knew it was coming, but they just wanted to stay out. And as they were coming back in, they knew they were in no condition and in no way ready for this test. So they devised this plan. They would go in and they'd talk to the dean and ask for a, a stay on their test. But before they did that, they made sure that they were covered in dirt and grease. And they came and told them this. Professor, uh, we were at a, a friend's wedding, uh, a dear friend of ours. And we were on our way back when the car blew a tire. And we had to push it all the way back onto campus. And, and we just were exhausted, we're tired, and there's just no way. We just really feel ready for this test. The professor, being a compassionate man, turns to him and says, oh, but of course, why don't we just have you take the test tomorrow? Would that be okay? The four men were like, yes, yes, thank you so much for the grace. And so with that, they rested up, studied up, and came ready the next morning for the test. The professor seeing him says, okay, we're going to do a slightly different version of this test, so just follow me. It's going to be, a, it's gonna be 100, 100 points for this one. The guys were like, okay. And so with that, the professor leads them to four individual rooms, he says, you'll be taking the test by yourselves. And they're like, okay, we're ready. And with that, they looked at their test. Question number one, two points. The name of the car. Question number two, worth 98 points. Which tire blew out? I wonder if they planned out that whole part. My brother-in-law is a, is a teacher in the Detroit area, and he teaches at a very large school. And and at these schools, it's not uncommon to have not just like an English class, like freshman English, but to have it multiple hours during the day. And so he would teach freshman English three to four times during a school day of 30-plus students in each class. And so he was, had signed an essay to be done, and he was collecting all those papers back, and it was the grading weekend for him. And two of his students, he thinks, had this idea. They probably guessed that with a teacher with 30 students in class, and he has about four classes of this, 120 papers, he's never going to know all these, remember all these papers. And so what they did is they did, they did the exact same paper. They both took, turned it in the exact same paper. One was in the first hour, one was in his fifth hour, and they figured by the time he got to the fifth hour, he'd never remember, and they'd both get a good grade. Well... My brother-in-law did notice. He did catch on. He was like, hey, I got two of the same paper. And so with that, he decided to have some fun with dealing with them. I think he had the wisdom of Solomon here. He, he turned around and he gave one student an A and the other student a D. And he waited to see how this would fl- flush out with those guys. I don't think their plan worked the way they had wanted because <laughs> they all of a sudden realized, hey, if I say something, that means, oh, we're stuck. Planning matters. What are, your, what are your plans? What are you looking forward to? What are you anticipating next? We make plans all the time. 
And today we're going to look at a parable, and the question is, do we make plans in our walk with Christ? Do we plan ahead with God in mind? So today we're going to look at a parable and what about the need to plan. But first, I do want to stop and ask ourselves a little bit about parables themselves. A parable, as many of you probably know, is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or a spiritual lesson. Jesus spoke in many parables. He spoke in these all the time. And some, I'm going to categorize them in three different ways, some were straightforward and easy. When Jesus says, a woman lost a coin and she went to look for it, you're like, oh, I get it. It was something of value and she wanted to find it. When Jesus says, there's a shepherd that had a hundred sheep and he lost one, we understand the need to go find the sheep. When Jesus is asked the question, who's my neighbor, and he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, we can stop and at the end go, oh, that's what it means to be a good neighbor. They're simple and they're straightforward. But there are some parables that Jesus uh, speaks that are not that way. They're more of a, oh, now I get it type parable. I think of the parable of the good soils. If you remember this parable, Jesus talks of a farmer going out to the land and he spreads seed and he spreads some to the ground and, and birds come and eat it. And some falls on rocky soil and it quickly dies. And some falls among the weeds and gets choked out. And other seed falls on the ground, on good soil, and grows. Imagine being a disciple hearing that story. A story in which you are a part of an agricultural society, and Jesus says there was a farmer who spread seed, and some of it landed on good ground, and some of it didn't. And some of it got eaten, and some of it got choked out. The disciples probably went, yeah, Jesus, that's called farming. Uh, a lot of people do this. Uh, it's not that hard. You know, and Jesus then comes back and says to him, but let me tell you this. What if I tell you that the seed that is thrown out is the kingdom, represents the kingdom of God, and the soils represent the listeners who hear about this. Now the disciples go, oh, I get it. It's more than just about seeds and soil. It's about our hearts and what God's doing. So there's those straightforward parables, those, those parables that we go, oh, now I get it. And then we have today's parable. <laughs> today's parable is one of those, what is Jesus talking about now? And we're going to look at this to this morning, and I think we're going to hopefully come to a clear understanding of what Jesus is talking about. If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 16, and we'll be looking at the first 13 verses of Luke chapter 16. So in Luke chapter 16, verse 1, he starts, Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what should I do? Since my master's taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. Hey, how much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil. Olive oil, he said. Hey, take your invoice, he told him. Sit down and quickly write 50. Next, he asked another, how much, how much do you owe? I owe him 100 measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write down 80. So far, I'm going to say this. If I pause right here, the parable seems pretty straightforward. This guy's going to really mess up his owner. He's getting back at him almost. 
And then we hear what Jesus says at this point in the parable, in verse 8. Jesus continues the parable and he says this, The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous money, so that when it fails, you, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with, with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. That parable quickly turned. I can hear almost in my mind, the first time I heard it, I'm asking myself these questions. Did I just hear Jesus right? Is he telling us to be dishonest? Is he telling us to be like this, this crooked manager, to cheat? Is he saying it's okay to cheat on your taxes? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or is he, is he talking about making... He had this whole passage where he says, you should use your money to make friends. Is Jesus telling us to buy our friendships? To pay people off? Where is he coming with this? And is he saying it's okay to cheat others as long as you don't get caught? Because he praises the dishonest manager. I think if we look at this parable a little closer, we'll see what Christ is trying to say to us as his followers. But I'd like to break it up into two parts. The first part, I'd just like to look at the manager itself in that role. In, verse, in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, it says that the owner called a manager to give an account. We have trouble with this because we don't understand fully what, what manager means, but the best we can translate is that this guy was probably a financial advisor. He was responsible for taking the owner's money and expanding it, taking what the owner had as resources and wealth and expanding it. And we see that he's either irresponsible or lazy because the owner says, I want you to give an account for how you've done this because you haven't done it well. The role of the manager was to be a steward to help the owner extend his resources and not just to use them for his pleasure. And so when we read the story, we get this idea that maybe this manager is using the owner's resources for his own benefit and not for the owner's. And the owner's calling him into question saying, I've given you resources, I've given you this, this money that, what have you done with it? It seems like you've spent it on yourself. In fact, a manager does not own anything but is to work hard and only succeeds when the owner succeeds. We see this in the Bible over and over again. We see this in the story of Daniel and the story of Joseph, both of whom were men given much authority in the kingdoms of their respective countries because they were stewards of the king's resources. Daniel as he interprets the dream and he talks about the famine, he is now placed in a position, oh, sorry, that's not Daniel. Yeah, it is. Uh, he, he interprets the dream. He's given a position of power. Joseph with Pharaoh talks about the seven lean years and the seven uh, wealthy years. He is given a position of power because he's a steward of the king's resources. Both were forms of a manager who was given high positions because they served their king. And in fact, their very success was based on what they did for their owner for their master, for their king. And so we see in the beginning of the story that this manager is wasting the resources of his owner. Sorry, this manager is wasting the resources of his owner. The master was going to punish him for it. He wasn't using it properly. And that is to help the owner expand what he has. He was using it for himself. 
He was thinking, I need to get rich off this, not to see my master become wealthy and have him lift me up with him. Then we come to us. We ask ourselves this. If God owns all and he's our king, that means he's our master. Then we are all stewards of what he's given to us. And we hear the part of this parable and we ask ourselves, what kind of manager are we? Are we looking out for the king or for ourselves? Are we using money, time, gifts, resources for the best for God or for ourselves? The manager has to give an account for how he used what the owner gave him. God's calling us to give an account for how we use what he has given us. He is our king, and we are manager stewards of all that he's given. Then we come to a second part in this, the part in which Jesus starts to explain how this manager, though he cheated, should be praised. What does Jesus mean to be like him when he says, the master praised this unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely? Jesus is saying that the manager in his selfish way saw that what was coming and knew enough to plan. Jesus is looking at how he handled the situation. Those apart from God understand that you need to make plans and you need to use the resources you have wisely. We need to use, plan and use the, know how to use the resources that God gives us. So what do we learn from this parable? One, that wealth is not guaranteed. The things that we have are not guaranteed from God. There are seasons in life, and we need to plan to be wise with what God gives. The manager realizes he's about to be laid off, and that's when he starts making plans. His steady job is about to go away. God has provided us many resources, and there are those that might say, oh, God will continue to provide. I'm going to live on a wing and a prayer. And God says, no, I've given you a mind. Use it. Plan ahead. I think that's just one simple part of this, this parable. But I think what God's really calling us to do is to plan on how we're going to use what he's given. To use our wealth for him. To use what he's given for him. It's interesting because Jesus points out that we are to use our wealth, the wealth that God gives, to connect with others. He said it this way in the parable. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money, So when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. This seems a little odd. It seems a little weird that he would say, in a sense, use money to to build up friendships. But he's saying to us in in this sense, do not use the money and the wealth that I give you for yourself, but to connect others. To connect them to God. We are to build up for ourselves treasures in heaven, according to Matthew chapter 6, where moth uh, moth and rust do not occur that they're eternal. What are eternal things in heaven? People and God's word. And so when Jesus says, use your wealth to connect to people, he's saying use your wealth to connect to the things that are eternal, not the things that are just for you. So many times we use our money to build up collections and possessions, to build up comfort for ourselves, And God is asking us, did you use the resources I gave you to help others connect to me? Use it wisely. He's also pointing to the fact that wealth is to be our servant. That we are to build our life on Jesus. 
Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, I am the rock in which you build your life. Build it on me so that when storms come, you may stand firm. But for many people in our world today, they build their life on their material and their possessions, thinking that that's what's going to keep them afloat during tough times. But as we said before, wealth is not guaranteed. Resources will fail, but Jesus will not. Wealth is fleeting. Jesus is there. He is eternal. The storms of life will come. How are you planning for that day? When you're rocked with sickness, when you're rocked with financial calamities? Are you going to turn and say, well, I think I got this, or I got, I got that car, or this? Or are you going to turn and say, I have Christ. And with him, I can stand. You see, many people love money and use God. They want to be happy and comfortable. In fact, there's a term that's being used among the Christian community in which people that say they believe in God actually believe in a, they call a therapeutic Moralistic deism, meaning therapeutic, I want to feel good. Moralistic, as long as I'm acting good. Deism, God's there, but I only eat them there when I want them. I want to be happy, good, and God to be there when I need them. God's job is just to make me comfortable and to take away my problems. And I wonder if that's how the manager view, at the beginning of the story was viewing his owner. The owner existed only to provide the wealth or the materials he needed to live his life the way he wanted to live it. And the owner says, you're doing it all wrong. Do we do the same with God? Do we look at him and say, oh God, you're just there for my resources, for my comfort. But God says, no. The resources I give you, don't, they're fleeting. I'm here for you. I'm most important. We need to love God and use money. Jesus put it this way, no household slave can be the slave of two masters since he'll either hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. What are you trusting? God says, I am to be first. I am the owner and the king. Use what he, I am to use what he gives to further his kingdom. When we live this way, we're trusted with more at the end of the parable, Jesus says this, So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? If you've not been faithful with this thing that's going to fade and go away, how am I going to trust you with what's eternal? How are you going to have others lean on me, to know me? You ask questions of me of, why don't I know your joy, your peace? And I say, because you're probably trusting. God would say, you're trusting your things more than you're trusting me. God, where are you? And he says, I'm right here. Trust me, I am the rock. Instead, we sometimes look to our possessions, to our, our money, to our plans that say, I'm going to make myself rich. And God says, that's not what you trust. You use that, but you trust me. Are we trusting God with all that we are and have? When we live with God first in our life, and that we are just simple stewards or managers of what God has given, it changes how we live. And so what starts off as a weird parable where we go, Jesus, what are you talking about? becomes very clear that wealth that we have is from God and it's to be used to further his kingdom. Not unwisely for yourself, but to help others come and to know who Christ is, the eternal king. 
the true treasure, the one we all desire, the pearl of great price. So how are we doing on this? What type of manager are you? These are questions that the parable leaves with us at the end that only you can really answer with God. How are you using the resources that God's given? What type of manager would you be called? Father in heaven, I just thank you for a chance to open your word. I thank you that you want us to wrestle with you, to deal with you, because you are a great God, worthy of praise. And I thank you that you let us be a part of what you're doing in our life. We just commit ourselves to you, and may, may we be good managers to our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.